Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. cambridgesavings.com/csb1. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. You may have heard this story before, but here it is. A beautiful but self-centered actress realizes her career is starting to slip away, and she comes up with a cruel method of salvaging it. The idea is to crush the career of a young and undiscovered but more talented actress who has captured the heart of the guy she loves. And while she's at it, this beautiful self-centered actress wants to steal the younger actress's talent by having her dub her lines in a high-profile movie. Because it turns out that beauty alone can only get you so far. What's wrong with the way I talk? What's the big idea? Am I dumb or something? That's Lena Lamont from the movie Singing in the Rain. She's not a real person, but she expresses a real fear that a change in technology, in this case the move from silent films to talking films, is going to ruin her. If she's done such a grand job doubling for my voice, don't you think she ought to go on doing just that? And nothing else. Lena, you're out of your mind. After all, I'm still more important to the studio than she is. Lena, I wouldn't do that to her in a million years. Why, you'd be taking her career away from her. People just don't do things like that. People? I ain't people. I am a, a shimmering, glowing star in the cinema firmament. Mark Wanamaker, a longtime Hollywood historian and a consultant on films like La La Land, says that the pain of technological upheaval, which has been talked about so much in relation to politics and American culture today, that's nothing new. And in the 1920s, it ripped Hollywood apart. It did ruin careers. It even strained relationships. We're going to go down and we're going to pass in a few moments the uh, bungalow of Douglas Fairbanks, where he courted Mary Pickford in 1920, where he produced out of this bungalow The Three Musketeers and The Mark of Zorro, as well as other films when he was here. And um, here, I believe, United Artists Studio was born here. That's where the first meetings were held here. Mm. And before he married Mary Pickford, who was working across the street where Paramount is today, it was another studio at the time, we're talking 1919, 1920, um, she used to come here and rendezvous with him. This was their, their little nest. I met Wanamaker on a rainy day in Hollywood, which is unusual. And even more unusual, I had an undiagnosed upper respiratory infection. I finally realized it, but not until I spent an interesting morning in a Beverly Hills urgent care clinic. So anyway, back to my visit with Mark Wanamaker. We walked in the rain around one of the oldest studio backlots in Hollywood, Raleigh Studios, which has been in use for over a hundred years. And it's particularly special because of its association with Fairbanks and Pickford, the sort of Brad and Angelina of their day. Except that Fairbanks and Pickford were global stars at a time when there weren't many other people on the red carpet. They were megastars on steroids. And the coming of sound, Wanamaker says, put strain on their marriage because Mary made the transition while her husband struggled. Doug was extremely insecure by the time sound came in. He thought his career was over. He, he was very, very, uh, you know, sensitive. She tried to bring him into the sound thing. They did two or three pictures with sound, but he was, in his mind, just drifting away. Did and they think separated. his voice wasn't good enough, or what was No, it no, it wasn't okay. that. He okay. just didn't fit in. He felt he didn't fit in. And that broke up their marriage. And they regretted it, both of them. 
that this happened, that they couldn't come together and they didn't have counseling or any of this kind of thing, right? So it was a tragedy that they broke up and he died young, you know, in his 50s. And she dr started drinking and all this. She married a buddy, uh, Rogers, a friend of hers from years ago. It was a marriage of convenience. But she was happy and she lived to, to be in her 80s, but always regretted that Doug and her, that was the love of her life. Wanamaker says that what happened to Fairbanks and Pickford was a lot like the story of Singing in the Rain, in which just one member of an on-screen couple has the right skills for talking pictures. And there's trauma when only some people feel successful. Many of them uh, had to fall behind. Oh, they had a weird voice. They had a squeaky voice. There's, I mean, the man looks like, you know, a big he-man, and he has a squeaky voice. No good. The woman has a squeaky Brooklyn accent or something. No good. So then a whole new industry of voice coaches came in to, to coach them on losing their accent or lowering their voice or or um, just how to speak properly on Which the stage. Which is a big part of Singing in the Rain, right? They do have to get voice coaches who teach you them how that? to be sort of debonair. Now let me hear you read your line. And I can't stand him. And I can't stand him. And I can't stand him. Can't. 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 And what's so great about Singing in the Rain, they have this technique in which, remember, Debbie Reynolds goes behind there and speaks and sings and stuff for the woman who, the other actress, who was a big silent star, can't do anything. And her voice is horrible. What are you going to sing, Miss Lamont? Singing in the Rain. Singing in the Rain. Singing in the Rain. In uh, what key? A flat. A flat. In A flat. What a perfect film, and that's exactly, and also, where do you put the mics? They didn't know how, where to put the microphones. They put them in flower pots, if you noticed in there, or they, they finally started hanging them. They were giant microphones uh, called cylinder microphones. They weighed like 20 pounds, and they finally had to build booms to hold these things, and, and then say, you're right, right now, I'm talking into a mic. Say, right now, I'm speaking to someone else on my left, over here. Oh, wait a minute. The mic has to follow me over. See the trouble? Yeah. Now, Lena, look. Here's the mic. Right here in the bush. Yeah. Now you talk towards it. The sound goes through the cable to the box. A man records it on a big record in wax. But you have to talk into the mic first. In the bush. If you go back to the teens and the 20s, and you think about like these big stars, do you think people thought we're at the beginning of something huge or do you think they thought who knows where this is going? Like, did they realize that they were pioneers and innovators in, you know, in the way we think of them now? Yeah, uh, at the time when sound was coming in, people like Roy, Walt Disney, Douglas Fairbanks, Mary Pickford, all these silent people you know, who worked in the silent industry, this was a revolution in sound. It was a revolution in the f making of films. And they were making all kinds, they had to write scripts differently. This was, 
incredible. Now, at the early days, they would take stage plays and film them. They didn't know what else to do. They don't know how to write. How do you write a screenplay with, that's made for sound? They, they had to relearn the whole industry. King Vidor, the famous director, he told me that he was, by the way, he was a great silent filmmaker, which is a whole different way of making films. It's more symbolic. You don't hear dialogue. It's, it's faces, it's movements, it's, and locations, things like this. Sound is words, uh, and, and it's a whole different thing. People think that Warner Brothers, who did The Jazz Singer with Al Jolson, was the first talkie film. It's not. There were talkie films and musical films all the way back to 1898. Alice Guy Blachet, the first woman director in the world in France in 1890s, made 103 sound films before 1905. Wow. They had special sound companies all around the country, United States and Europe, that were making sound films, that this is the difference. You remember IMAX? When IMAX came out, you cannot show IMAX anywhere. It had, you have to build a theater for IMAX. Hmm. It has to be a special place. It's, otherwise, it's just a novelty. You see it at the museum, which we used to have here at the LA County Museum, IMAX. Few people saw it. So same thing in the sound industry. You had to outfit all the theaters in the world with sound equipment and special projectors. So when, when there was that switchover from silent movies to talking pictures, um, how did theaters go about like retrofitting their theater to have sound in them? Such an critically important question. So in those days, they had theaters all over the country that, that showed silent films. Now, silent films were never silent. They were always with a live orchestra, piano, organ, whatever, whoever they could afford to have. They, they had this. But in 19, um, as I mentioned earlier, there were sound films for, for 20 years. But you needed special equipment in those theaters to see them. And very few theaters had this. It was a novelty. So the first company to really seriously put their money where their mouth was was the Warner Brothers. It was in 1926 when... They, they invested with banks millions of dollars in putting sound equipment in the theaters. Nobody else was willing to try because what if the public's not interested in talking films? So they decided to try out Don Juan, which was the famous story Don Juan with John Barrymore. But he wasn't talking and it. it would be sound synchronized orchestra music to go in the background. And sound effects. Remember when, well, if you've seen the film, there's sword fighting. So the sword fighting, you'd hear clicking sounds, you know, click, 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 and uh, other sound effects. So they opened it up in 1926. Great success. Everyone thought this is fantastic. The, you know who didn't like it? The uh, musician unions around the country. That means they don't need orchestra anymore. Oh, man, there was such a hue and cry for the musicians. So the studios employed them in other ways, uh, other methods and whatever to keep them quiet. And then um, shortly after this, Warner Brothers decided, okay, we're going to try out now musical soundtrack, but also talking and singing on the films. And so they got Al Jolson, who was one of the biggest stars on the stage ever, superstar at that time. Any of you who never heard of Al Jolson, you have to just look him up on Wikipedia and you'll understand why he was big superstar. And um, so they got him to do the jazz singer, which was a typical story about a, uh, uh, a young jazz singer who happens to be Jewish 
and his parents were Orthodox Jews who, who thought he should be a cantor singing religious music, you know, in the temple. And he says, no, I want to sing jazz, right? So there's a conflict in here. That's what the, the plot is. So Al Jolson, for the first time, people can see him and hear him singing his, some of his famous songs. Mama, listen, I'm going to sing this like I will if I go on the stage, you know, with this show. I'm going to sing it jazzy. Now get this. Blue sky, smiling at me, 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 me. Nothing but little blue sky, do I see? Do, 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 do. And it was a smash. Immediately, the other studios who were ready to go, gearing up, ready to invest the money, invested it. When Warner Brothers said, we want to spend a whole ton of money wiring up theaters so that they'll be able to have sound in them, was Warner Brothers really scared about that? I mean, were they just thinking, this could be throwing tremendous amounts of money away? A great, great question. There were four brothers. Two of them particularly did not want this. <laughs> they de- were worried they would be bankrupt in no time. Because brothers they had, divided. Because they had hard times. Between 1922 and 1926, Rin Tin Tin, their star of the silent era, was the who, only who thing. Who was a dog, we should was say, a dog, people didn't know. Was saving Big the star, studio. huge star dog. They, they were saving the studio because they were invested in theaters and everything else. They were not doing well. They were not doing well mm-hmm. in, in the flapper era, as you think they might. So, yes, so... So Sam Warner convinced them, we have to do this, and he pushed it and pushed it. Finally, the jazz singer comes out, and, and they were just about to open the jazz singer in Los in Hollywood at the new Warner Theater. They just built it, Wilcox and Hollywood Boulevard, and he died of an of a infection in his ear. He died right before. It's so weird. He's the one that pushed all of this, and he dies on them. But the rest is history. Warner Brothers was successful. All the other studios jumped on the bandwagon, sound films, to what we have today. Were, I mean, movies have always been popular. Did did bringing sound into movies make them a lot more popular? Great, another great question. Um, the whole silent industry, which was 30 years, uh, was very popular. Serials and just everything, westerns and dramas, whatever you want. Shakespeare was being made. Epic films, et cetera, et cetera. And um, people were fascinated with the moving picture for those 30 years. They didn't have a moving picture until it started in 1898 when they started filming trains coming in and women's skirts blowing up. By the way, Marilyn Monroe's skirt blowing up is nothing new. They did that in 1903. And it was done in New York in which a woman with her husband walking down the street and in the subway blows her skirt up. Wow, that was a big deal, right? Wait, accidentally or like No, no, that planned, was on purpose. Okay, okay. Oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> but people in the audience went flipped out at this. <laughs> so anyway, but my point is, is that when sound came in, it was a novelty that they turned into the popular fair as something new. They all of a sudden, they have musicals leading into Singing in the Rain, which is a typical film a musical of the 50s, talking about how this all happened. And after that, we had musicals forever, you know, everything from West Side Story to whatever you have from the Broadway to other original musicals just made for films. So it was always uh, trying to, to create something new to bring more people to the theaters. So is there a movie that's been like the most, you know, sort of pivotal movie in your own life? Yeah, that would be Sunset Boulevard, made at Paramount, with uh, William Holden, of course, and uh, Billy Wilder, who was the uh, director. And 
I love it because Gloria Swanson is in it. She stars as Norma Desmond. What is important about this film? This film was made in 1949 to 50, released in 50. It's very important to me because it represents symbolically the end of the silent film era into a modern era, which is the sound era. And um, it's all about these famous people, directors, actors, whoever they were, who worked in the silent era and how their careers had ended because of it, because of sound coming in. And it also represents Hollywood, of the new Hollywood and the old Hollywood. And it's so strange because I visited the old back lots. I met many of the people that were in the silent era. It was, it's another era. That's the word for it. So this, I, I see this film, and it just brings home to me that this writer, William Holden, who's like, nobody wants him anymore, and it's a new, younger people coming in, and how he's trying to get a job in the business, and they look at him, he's a has-been. Here we have Gloria Swanson, one of the greatest, biggest movie stars in the world, who is now living as a recluse in her home with her butler, who happened to be her director, who lost his career as well. Wait a minute, haven't I seen you before? I know your face. Get out, or shall I call my servant? You're Norma Desmond. Used to be in silent pictures, used to be big. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. Uh-huh. I knew there was something wrong. They're dead. They're finished. There was a time in this business when they had the eyes of the whole wide world. But that wasn't good enough for them. Oh, no. They had to have the ears of the world, too. So they opened their big mouths, and out came talk. Talk, talk. That's where the popcorn business comes in. You buy yourself a bag and plug up your ears. And here, she's thinking of co- making a comeback. She's writing a great script, but it's, it's old-fashioned. Nobody wants it. But she, she's living in an illusion. And she, she gets this writer, William Holden, who's a has-been, to write this for her. He sees that it's just crazy lunacy. And by accident, she drives, her butler drives a great car, which the studios would like to use in a film. So they contact her. And she's delusional and thinks, they want me back. So she comes to the studio in all of her pomp and circumstances to see Mr. DeMille, who's still working. He's one of the few working in Hollywood. And DeMille, actually as DeMille in the film, and she comes to the stage and he sees her and, oh, it's great to see you again. And DeMille says, what's she doing here? And they say, well, there's a mistake, communication. They just want her car. They don't want her. Wanted what? DeMille didn't have the heart to tell you. None of us has had the heart. That's a lie. They want me. I get letters every day. You tell her, Max. Come on, do her that favor. Tell her there isn't going to be any picture. There aren't any fan letters except the ones you write. That isn't true. Max! You can see the, the dynamics of this script. It is so nostalgic, so tragic. And in the end, she ends up shooting Holden and killing him because he wants out, and she just can't have it. And she shoots him by accident, of course, but still, the tragedy of all this, the end of the silent film industry is the end. You know what I mean? This is it. So to me, this is so emotional for me to see it. Right. Well, and it's a lot of, at any juncture like that, it's a ton of upheaval. I have to say, I've never seen Sunset Boulevard. It's but an you've, upheaval. That's you've it. inspired me. I'm going to go home. Oh, you have to see it. And watch Sunset Boulevard. Okay. It's an upheaval of a whole industry, people, 
uh, involved, personalities, uh, real people, humanity involved, yeah. who, are, who will die off obscure. It's adaptation, and some people will and some people won't. Exactly. Yeah. That's why Sunset Boulevard is my favorite film. And Singing in the Rain is my favorite for similar reasons. Mm. We, I mean, um, Gene Kelly is on his way out. And here's Debbie Reynolds coming and gives him new life. It's all related to the to the um, different changes in film industry, not just film industry. It's every industry, really, as the new is taking over the old. Old eras go out, but these are the pioneers. That's why we can't throw them away. We have to listen to them, learn from the people of the past, so we don't repeat the problems that we've had in the in the past, in the future, in the present. Like all the technology and everything, everybody thinks it just came out of nowhere. No, all these people spent their whole lives developing this technology that we have today. I'm singing in the rain, just singing in the rain. What a glorious feeling, I'm happy again. A huge thank you to Hollywood historian Mark Wanamaker for sitting down and talking to me and for walking me around Raleigh Studios where we chit-chatted for a long time about everything from competition to Hollywood from other locations around the globe to the 1938 film Robin Hood with Errol Flynn and Olivia de Havilland, which it turns out we both love and I really suggest you check it out. With a happy refrain and singing, just singing.